This is the ACR 22 Daily Podcast Review featuring the Room Now faculty as they present to you their favorite abstracts and presentations from the meeting. Enjoy. Hi, good morning. Uh, this is Dr. Robert Chow reporting live for Room Now from ACR 22. And today I wanted to share uh, uh, interesting abstracts on uh, very hot topics in the world of gut microbiome again in uh, spondyloarthritis. And this is abstract 0868. And, you know, the really it focused on can we alter uh, the neonatal gut microbiome to you know, pot potentially prevent spondyloarthritis or at least how, is, how does that affect the development of spondyloarthritis? We know there's been a growing body of literature suggesting that alterations in intestinal flora can affect the pathogenesis of spondyloarthritis. And as we know, the most critical time in gut flora formation is the neonatal formation, where it transforms from really this kind of sterile environment to a dense and diverse colonization. So this is, uh, or this was a retrospective study uh, examining perinatal factors known to affect neonatal gut microbiome, including the mode of delivery, the choice of early diet, antibiotic exposure, and maternal smoking. Overall, 59 patients were studied, and they found that patients with antibiotic exposure were actually 6.2 times more likely to develop spondyloarthritis, and this association further increased with a greater number of antibiotic courses. Ironically, they found the other factors did not affect spondyloarthritis development at all. Uh, this included a mode of delivery things like vaginal versus C-section, early diet, which I thought was very interesting, including breast milk, formula, or TPN, and even smoking, maternal, maternal smoking did not show a difference. I think this is very interesting data, obviously. Um, you know, looking back on it, we know this is a small study and it is retrospective. And I think to us, it makes sense. I think we all, all of us understand that antibiotic use can alter and change the gut microbiome. Um, and I think for us uh, as clinicians, you know, one of the most important things or the questions I always receive uh, from patients about gut microbiome, I think is, is because I feel like inherently to us as, as people, we feel like the gut microbiome is something we can control. And I think to patients, that's very important besides them coming in every few months, getting our blood work that we recommend, our medicines that we prescribe. Patients want to have a sense of uh, their own control over their disease. And I think gut microbiome and diet is, is one of those um, areas. But now looking at this data, you know, is this something that we can control? Because when we get sick. And if we get sick, do we not take antibiotics then because of this study? Um, obviously, I don't think that's the right choice. Um, I think there's a few things to consider. Maybe in the future, if a pregnant patient is sick, um, should we be more judicious with antibiotic use? You know, maybe don't give everyone who has a, a sneeze and a cough and a typical upper respiratory infection a Z-pack. Um, Maybe there should be a role for probiotics when prescribing antibiotics to uh, pregnant patients. I think these are all interesting questions. And then this study was definitely very interesting in shedding some new light on the world of gut microbiome and uh, spondyloarthritis. So thanks for tuning in uh, for continued coverage of ACR 22. Please tune into Room Now and follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC.
Thank you. Hi, David Liu here, reporting for Room Now from ACR 2022. All we were talking about last year was oral surveillance and still the legacy keeps on going. I want to tell you something about something slightly related to oral surveillance and some of the data that's washed out from that. Because in oral surveillance, we did see a sub-study in that group of patients who did have some cardiovascular risk. We saw, some, we saw in TNF inhibitors versus JAK inhibitors some infection data and we saw that JAK inhibitors did seem to carry an increased risk for a number of different types of infection. Now, what about East Asian patients? Because we know that they do have different infective risks and they do make up a decent proportion of our patients, but we don't always have the data to inform our decisions in that subpopulation. What we've seen at this meeting, and that's the beauty of ACR, you get data from all around the world, South Korean national insurance data looking at TNF inhibitors versus JAK inhibitors as far as zoster risk is concerned, general bacterial infection and then opportunistic infections. And what we saw was that general bacterial infections were equal between TNF inhibitors and JAK inhibitors. We saw an outsized risk, as you might imagine, of zoster in this population with JAK inhibitors over TNF inhibitors. Even with this enriched population, we saw a 2.3 times greater risk of zoster infection in JAK inhibitor treated patients versus TNF inhibitor patients. Um, although we did see slightly more opportunistic infections with TNF inhibitor treated patients versus JAK inhibitor patients. The point I'll make though is that it's a lot more common to get zoster, serious zoster in fact, in this population compared to opportunistic infections. So plenty to consider as we go about trying to still uh, piece um, apart the real data from our surveillance in real decisions that we have to make clinic. For plenty more on rheumatoid arthritis, head on down to roomnow.com. Hi, this is Julian Segan from Melbourne, Australia. I'm reporting for Room Now at the ACR Convergence in Philadelphia 2022. Uh, this is day two and it's quite cold here. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you about abstract number 0925. Uh, this is the impact of initiating biologic and targeted synthetic uh, uh, disease modifying agents on pain medication use in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. So we know that chronic analgesia use uh, in patients with rheumatoid arthritis and other rheumatic diseases is very common. Um, the complications of opioid use uh, and other analgesic use, for, for example, neuropathic agents uh, are well established. Uh, this study used uh, insurance claims data from 2009 to 2020 uh, on more than 30,000 patients with rheumatoid arthritis uh, who were initiating uh, their first biologic or second line uh, biologic or targeted synthetic disease modifying agents. Um, it looked at the trend of uh, medication use over time, including opioids, anti-inflammatories, as well as oral steroids over a one-year period. Uh, cancer was excluded in this cohort, uh, but they allowed for other comorbid conditions, including uh, patients who, who had osteoarthritis, which was 50% in this cohort, as well as 20% with fibromyalgia and 30% with peripheral neuropathy. Uh, so this study showed that there was a reduction in opioid use, uh, although this was actually quite small. So this was only up to 4% uh, in the population uh, from a baseline use of about 55 to 60%, which is actually quite high. Uh, the reduction was mainly re uh, driven uh, by reduced use of tramadol as well as hydrocodone. 
Um, we actually saw an increase in gabapentinoids over time, so this includes gabapentin and pregabalin. Um, the increase was quite small, only 1% from a baseline of 22%, and I wonder if this reflects uh, increasing use and increasing availability uh, in broader society, particularly with medications like pregabalin. There was also a small reduction in oral prednisolone use, uh, with a mean reduction of uh, just two milligrams. Uh, so this study actually provides us quite a high level of data uh, with regards to medication trends over time. Uh, it has the usual limitations, uh, including uh, the limitations of using claims data. Uh, this study clearly reflects to us uh, that there is residual pain in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, as well as rheumatoid arthritis with comorbid osteoarthritis and fibromyalgia. Uh, pain remains quite difficult to manage, and clearly we need new strategies, including non-pharmacologic uh, management. Uh, we also have probably legacy from the opioid epidemic uh, with very high baseline use of opioid medication. Uh, so this is uh, Dr. Julian Segan again, uh, reporting from Room Now uh, from the ACR Convergence 2022 in Philadelphia. Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Trish Harkins from Dublin, Ireland, and I'm reporting for Room Now from ACR 2022. Today, I have the absolute honour and privilege to be joined by Professor Leahy Eder, uh, who needs no introduction. Um, as many of you know, she is a professor, rheumatologist and scientist at Women's College Hospital and the University of Toronto. So today, Professor Eder has very kindly agreed to discuss her abstract number 1007, entitled Metabolic Disorders and Abnormal Dietary Patterns and the Association with Psoriatic Arthritis arthritis. So the DIPSA study, the Dietary Interventions in Psoriatic Arthritis. So first off, thank you so much, Professor Eder, for agreeing to join us today. Um, my first question is, what inspired you uh, to undertake this research? Thank you, Trish. This is, uh, um, I guess, a good question. And um, we know that uh, psoriatic arthritis is strongly associated with obesity. Many of the patients that we see in the clinic are facing obesity and its related metabolic abnormalities. And so there is more and more epidemiologic data to suggest that obesity is actually a risk factor for development of psoriatic arthritis. And it's also associated with poor disease outcomes. And there are also some studies that suggest that some dietary habits or changes, especially in mice models, could be associated with development of psoriasis uh, itself. So we were wondering whether, well, we see patients that are seeing me, I'm sure the patients that you see in the clinic as well are asking about what they should eat or what they shouldn't eat in order to make their disease better. And so we decided to study that. And our hypothesis was that we, we believe that losing weight is important. There are some data, mostly in psoriasis patients, that losing weight could improve at least to a, a mild to moderate degree their psoriasis. There is not much in psoriatic arthritis, but that's um, some data to suggest that. But the problem with losing weight is that it's really hard to achieve and maintain. So we were also asking ourselves whether focusing on healthy diet habits would be another way of improving patient outcomes beyond just weight loss. And that's why we selected Mediterranean diet, which is a type of diet that's associated with many good outcomes. And yes, it might be associated with some weight loss, but more focusing on the olive oil and 
nuts and fruits and vegetables, these components rather than focusing on losing weight. So this is really the hypothesis behind the DIPSA study, which is a, a randomized control trial aimed at assessing whether a Mediterranean diet versus low caloric diet versus standard of care could be used as an adjunct therapy, not instead of therapy, but adjunct therapy in patients who continue to have ongoing symptoms related to PSA. Brilliant. Um, And I know this is incredibly complex, but I was just wondering if you could briefly give us your opinion on what you think is driving the link of obesity with psoriatic arthritis. Yeah, there are several hypotheses. And um, one, we we all know that obesity is a state of, it's a pro-inflammatory state. So the adipose tissue is uh, not just a source of energy, but it can function as an endocrine organ. There is production of pro-inflammatory cytokines. So it's possible that in, you know, this pro-inflammatory milieu would affect the skin and the joints. That's one hypothesis. And there are some other hypotheses related to, you know, the biomechanical stress associated with obesity influencing the enthesis. And then there are some hypotheses around the microbiome, maybe things that we eat would affect the microbiome. And in in the DIPSA study, we we do collect stool samples and blood samples. So we will be able to test some of these hypotheses in the future. So watch this space. (laughs) Um, So back to your abstract, if you could briefly go through the methodology and maybe some of the pertinent results from um, abstract 1007. So this is really, it's an ongoing, DIPSA is an ongoing study and uh, we still, we are still recruiting, but we thought it might be uh, kind of helpful to start looking at the data from the first uh, 32 patients that were recruited. We aim to recruit a total of 90 patients. And so we were assessing first their um, sort of metabolic abnormalities and as expected, because patients that are recruited for DIPSA are uh, those that have overweight and at least overweight. So many of the over 70% of the patients were obese and as expected as well, they had a lot of metabolic abnormalities such as uh, hypertension, dyslipidemia. This was not a surprise. The other component of the study was um, asking patients about their dietary habits. So when they enroll in the study, they f- complete a dietary recall for three weekdays. Um, and then there is a way to estimate how good they adhere with recommended diet. Um, this is based on the nutrition, American Nutrition Association, and it's called the Healthy Eating Index. So there are several categories for different food components and Based on this recall, we give them a score ranging from zero to 10 or zero to five. And the higher the score, the better they are in terms of you know, adhering with these recommended diets. We found that um, there was the, the low adherence in terms of the different food components was with whole grains and sodium. So these were the components that people were received the lowest scores. Women were generally doing better than men, maybe more conscious about what they eat. Yeah. And then yeah. the, the last component was we assessed the correlation between the this index of adherence index and some measures of, of disease activity in PSA. We did find some interesting associations there. We found that people that 
consume more fruits, had less swollen joints. Uh, people that cons were consuming uh, less sugars had lower uh, fatigue and uh, lower PSAID, which is a measure of quality of life. And there was also some association with uh, unsaturated and saturated fatty acids and enthesitis. So this is very preliminary. Obviously, it's a cross-sectional analysis, but it does show some interesting uh, associations that would uh, hopefully be confirmed in the randomized control trial itself. And um, we hope that we'll be able to determine whether diets could actually be used as an adjunct therapy in psoriatic arthritis in those patients that um, don't meet you know, the, the low disease activity state just as an add-on. Again, it's not replacing any of the very effective medications that we have, but just as an add-on that could potentially improve the psoriatic arthritis as well as their metabolic abnormalities. Which is brilliant. Um, I suppose, and following on from that and the next steps of the study, what do you ultimately hope the impact of your results will have on the lives of patients with psoriatic arthritis? Well, uh, I, I believe there are still lots of gaps, despite the fact that in psoriatic arthritis, there has been huge advances in therapy. We have lots of modes of actions and biologics and targeted synthetic therapies. Many patients still are still facing a high burden of disease. Uh, some of it may not be improved just by targeting the immune, um, immune cells or immune uh, pathways. Uh, there are some other aspects of, you know, related to comorbidities that we need to address. Uh, their cardiovascular health is a major part of their disease. So, and also diet is really something that is, people are asking about it. Many people are keen to try. And if it can make their disease better, that would be a great bonus. Absolutely. And even quality of life, you know, um, simple, easily modifiable things to change in their diet. Yeah. So um, thank you so much. Um, I'm really excited for the next stage of the study and hearing the results for that. Um, thank you so much again for joining us today. Um, and thank you to everyone who listened in. Um, I encourage you all to subscribe to Room Now and follow us all on Twitter to keep up to date with all things ACR 2022. Hi, this is Leanne Gensler from UCSF in San Francisco reporting for Room Now for day one of the ACR Convergence Conference from Philadelphia. Um, I am going to speak to my favorite abstracts of the, of the first day, which include two uh, posters and two oral presentations. The first two uh, abstracts that were posters that I would love to talk about are 0402 and... Uh, abstract 0388. And, and that's because they have a related um, area of interest. And that's about opioid use in spondyloarthritis. So uh, the first abstract 0402 was presented by Alexis Agdi and uses the forward data bank to understand opioid usage in patients with both psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. And in this data set, they looked at healthcare utilization and cost in these patients that were using opioids for their symptoms. Interestingly, psoriatic arthritis um, and ankylosing spondylitis patients used 21 and 27% of those patients used opioids, which feels quite high. 
And of course, as you might expect, these patients using opioids spent a lot more on their healthcare than those patients that were not using opioids. And so really speaking to the fact that these patients are using more healthcare utilization, um, and we should really be thinking about how we can address their burden of disease. A follow-up abstract, which uh, used an entirely different data set using the RISE data set, was Rachel Staval's abstract looking at the incidence and factors associated with fraction older adults with ankylosing spondylitis. Now, this is the first time that RISE is being used to look at ankylosing spondylitis, so that's really important. They had over 2,000 patients with AS that also had a linkage to Medicare data. And over a two-year follow-up period, noted that uh, of patients that fractured, interestingly, there was, as you might expect, more osteoporosis, more comorbidity, and a lower BMI in these patients. However, in addition, independently, opioid usage in patients with fracture was higher. And so with an odds of 1.77. So I think, again, thinking about opioid usage in patients with spinal arthritis and in here ankylosing spondylitis in particular, we really need to be thinking about the downstream consequences of opioid usage in these patients and how we might be able to help support these patients so that they really do not need opioids. Moving on to two oral abstracts that were presented in the session on day one, 0544 looked at a novel mechanism, bimakizumab, in non-radiographic axial spinal arthritis. So this is the B-Mobile 1 study, and they looked at 24 weeks of efficacy and safety. So this is a phase three study. This does not have an FDA indication yet. Um, and this is a study that, that looked at patients that had both uh, TNF and inadequate response, but also bio-naive patients. At their 16-week primary endpoint, patients met the, primer, met the primary endpoint and key secondary endpoints. And so that included an ASUS 40, 40% improvement in almost 48% of patients treated compared to 21% of placebo patients. And interestingly, when you compared patients that had bio experience with inadequate response and TNF in, 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 inhibited naive patients, the response was very similar. So both patients that had been experienced with TNF inhibitors and were bio-naive had a both response compared to placebo. Um, and, and so, and then what Dr. Diodar showed in the presentation was actually the B-Mobile 2 study with ankylosing spondylitis where you see a similar result. So I, so I think this is both a novel drug mechanism coming out showing response in non-radiographic patients and quite similar responses despite small numbers in those patients that were bioexperienced and not. Uh, safety was, as has been reported in prior trials, the most common uh, treatment emergent adverse event was respiratory tract infections affecting 7% of patients, oral candidiasis in 2.9% of patients, um, and all of these were non-severe and non-systemic and none led to treatment discontinuation. My only caveat here is this is only 24-week data. We do need longer-term data to really understand the um, uh, adverse events in these patients. And finally, the last study I'm going to present is one that I think is relevant to clinical practice, and that is 0545. This was presented by Cindy Weinstein, who is a, an employee of Merck, where they did a study of withdrawal of golimumab in non-radiographic axial spinal arthritis patients who had achieved inactive disease. So there have been several withdrawal studies that have been 
published already, but what I like about this one, similar to the study done with sotilizumab, is that they had a long run-in period and then a randomization, not just to withdraw, but to dose reduce on golimumab. So this was a phase four parallel group withdrawal study called Go Back. Um, these patients had less than less than or equal to five years of disease. It's unclear whether that was symptom duration or disease duration. I suspect it's disease duration by diagnosis, which is really not um, the full course of disease since the median disease symptom uh, at the time of withdrawal was eight years. So these are slightly longer uh, patients with disease uh, duration, I define as symptom duration. Um, as we looked at these patients, they had a long run-in period of up to 10 months, and then they were randomized one-to-one-to-one -to, -one -to, -one to these three groups, and they were continued to follow for up to 12 months. And so in period two, what we saw was actually a greater proportion of the um, patients that were on treatment compared to not on treatment, the placebo arm, having uh, less flares. So that is as we might expect. And though there was no um, comparison between the doses and uh, it looks like confidence intervals crosses, I do think it looks like the people on reduced dose had more flares than the people that stayed on the full dose. And so whether that speaks to something about the drug or something about the fact that these symptoms, these patients had slightly longer symptoms is not clear to me. Another interesting point is that of the people that did flare in part two, where they were randomized, that was 51 patients. When they were retreated with golimumab, they achieved clinical response in 96% of patients. So that is important to know as we think about, can we reduce the dose? Can we stop the dose? And if we do and patients flare, then can we give them the drug back and will they respond? So that's it for day one for me. This is Leanne Gensler reporting for uh, Zoom for a room now. And I will look forward to talking to you on day two. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow covering ACR 22 for Room Now. And today I wanted to talk about a subject, again, that places a lot of power um, in the patients, uh, focusing on the lifestyle factors that could affect TNF inhibitor use and its efficacy. And this was abstract 1510. And they were looking at what uh, modifiable lifestyle factors could enhance the uh, use of TNF inhibitors in the treatment of axial spondylarthritis. This was a very large European study across 14 registries, totaling over 16,000 patients with axial spinal arthritis. And notably, these are all patients starting TNF inhibitors. Out of these patients, 29% were current smokers, 49% were current drinkers, alcohol drinkers, 37% were overweight, and 21% were obese. Uh, this study found that uh, smokers were less likely to achieve a BASDI 50 when compared to non-smokers. They also found that overweight and obese patients were also less likely to achieve BASDI 50 when compared to patients with normal weight. And they found that out of every 100 smokers who gave up smoking, they hypothesized that a further eight would uh, meet the uh, response criteria. 
Ironically, they also found that alcohol consumption, uh, patients out of the 49% patient, uh, patients who were current alcohol drinkers, they found that alcohol consumption was associated with an increased response. Um, although the, the investigators did note that this is unlikely to be causal. I think this data reinforces uh, the knowledge and, and, and information that we pass on to our patients. I think, you know, myself and probably all of us spend some time with patients who we know are, um, you know, smokers and we who we know are not leading the most healthy of lifestyles. Um, and we pass on this information, but um, I think one of the biggest challenges I face as a clinician is sometimes we discuss this. And I remember one patient, we discussed stopping smoking every time. And one time she just said, doc, how, how do I do it? I've tried patches. I've tried gum. I've gone to class. I can't. Um, and I think that's still an area that a lot of us uh, patients and physicians included need help on. Uh, you know, sometimes we don't know the best way to help an individual patients. Um, one of the things I try to pass on to uh, my patients who are attempting to quit smoking, I think number one, that's a great first step is initially even thinking about it. And I think studies have shown us that usually when you try to quit smoking, you're not successful the first time. It's usually the third or fourth or fifth time where patients really become quote unquote successful in their uh, smoking cessation. And I think that alcohol, um, although not their primary outcome and what the researchers were looking for in this study, I think that was an interesting data point where they found you know, alcohol consumption was increased with an increased response. Um, they don't really say uh, for these alcohol drinkers how much or what kind of alcohol. I think if, if the data shows that these patients were having, let's say, one or two glasses of wine per day, perhaps that should uh, you know, involve another study into really looking into that. Uh, but if I think if the, if the alcohol consumption is a very heterogeneous group, um, then I perhaps I would agree with the investigators that this is probably not a causal uh, relationship. Um, anyway, thank you for tuning in to Room Now for live coverage of ACR 22. And feel free to follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thank you.